Are you using Zoom read right now when you're talking to your clients or? Yeah, Zoom for the most part. Internal stuff is on Microsoft Teams, but if it's uh, with anybody from the outside, yeah, Zoom. Well, last week I shared on the TPS5 an article called The Eight Types of People We Become on Zoom. There's some really funny ones on here. You know, the the people everybody knows, like the unmuted multitasker. So it's like whoever's sending the emails and typing in the background, just could you mute your microphone? That'd be super. They're not really typing either. They're really more pounding on their keys with a hammer, aren't they? Yeah, they're watching YouTube. (laughs) I like the person that's the manicured tableau. This is where the person gets the perfect lighting and positions themselves a certain way, makes sure their background is all set up. They put on makeup. Everything below their waist is probably just a train wreck, but everything that's in view, perfect. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. All right, welcome to episode 166 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That's Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed, would you believe it that I'm looking out the window right now and it's snowing here in Minnesota? (laughs) It's snowing? Yes, it is. Welcome to the springtime in Minnesota. But, you know, considering that we're all stay at home, there's not a lot much more that we can do, right? Perfect weather to... uh, be on Zoom calls, and maybe binge watch Netflix. Yeah, I've never been so excited to mow my grass yesterday. (laughs) I might mow it again today, like go the other direction, see if I can make it look like the outfield of a baseball stadium. (laughs) Well, here we are, another week, another episode. Uh, I want to thank everybody out there for listening, for supporting. Touchpoint.health is the website. We certainly appreciate all of our sponsors, all of our partners. Uh, We've had some really great content come out over the last... Gosh, probably going on the last month for sure relative to, you know, everything that's going on right now with uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19. And so if you have not, uh, be sure to go out to the site, check out some of the other shows and show hosts. There's just some uh, some really cool stuff out there. We would also love it if you would sign up for the uh, TPS report. A little weekly uh, newsletter comes out every Monday morning with aggregated news stories from our show host. And uh, is a partner to the TPS5, which comes out in this very RSS feed or this very subscription feed every Friday. So be sure to check those out if you would. And speaking of, let's uh, take a quick pause for a word and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint. 
where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Since everyone's talking about COVID and coronavirus and pandemics, and we've even covered it quite a bit on this show over the last few weeks, we thought we would dive into something that looks at what does this mean for us as, as marketers? And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what consumer behavior looks like during a crisis and maybe even kind of what what's changed, maybe what our new reality is coming out of this. What does that mean for marketers, et cetera? Again, it circles back to the fact that we as digital marketers really need to understand our customers and how they're responding to what's going on out there. And, and if they're anything like you and me, Reed, there's a lot of feelings that are going on within this pandemic and how to respond and, and how they interact with hospitals and health systems. I think it's, it's kind of critical to get a good understanding of that because then that really shifts the way we actually show up online and other places when they're uh, contacting us. Well, let's take a look at the uh, the first article here, and it's it's funny. You should go to this link. We'll put the link, obviously, in the show notes, but you should go to it regardless, if nothing else, just to see the image they chose to put at the top <laughs> of the article. But it's from uh, Brooks Bell, brooksbell.com, and then in the title of the article is Hide, Panic, or Freeze, What Science Says About Consumer Behavior During a Crisis. And this is just from right at about a month ago, so pretty recent article that jumps into some different things that are going on. The author actually goes through and parses out things where they'd gone back and looked at you know what happened at the 2008 recession and some other pandemics and crises over time. And pulled out, you know, some research and some insights from that they found online from other research studies, et cetera. So I think it'd be kind of interesting to go through. They also point out, too, that according to an article that was published in 2016 by the Journal of Marketing Research, stress triggers an increase in cortisol in the body. And cortisol helps humans react quickly and effectively to threats. And that cortisol level can actually shift the way they consume content, they consume information, and purchase things. And they go a little bit further to talk about, you know, having a continued elevation or continued elevated levels of cortisol, it actually does impact that psychological functioning. So this is how we get to things like social avoidance, defensiveness, being an introvert, which I thought was just you were born that way, as we, as we all know, uh, hoarding. We know about that. Anybody that uh, went to the grocery store lately to try to buy some toilet paper knows oh all about gosh. that. Oh, gosh. Like, don't even, I don't understand. I don't understand. Anyway, I will say just a quick plug for Home Depot where I saw that they pulled all N95 masks off the shelves and are not going to sell any, any more N95 masks. They're just giving them all to hospitals. So I thought that was great. So short of that, we should be able to find stuff when we go to the store, I feel like. But anyway. I just got back from the grocery store and everything was fine. But anyway, the, the article kind of points out a variety of different experiments they did to examine the effect of stress on consumer spending and saving. Maybe we should go through a couple of these, Reed, to just kind of talk about some of the things that they found. First one, they did a they conducted an experiment that established that stress leads consumers to save money rather than use it to acquire non-necessities. 
And I think that's probably pretty intuitive. If you're worried all of a sudden, you know, you probably pull back to some degree. Now, I do know some people like the sense and the feel of buying things. And so maybe it does accelerate that for some folks. I I thought that was interesting when I read that because I do know people that the more stressed they are, the more they buy. But um, the next experiment found that stress made consumers more willing to save money. So kind of along the same lines, save money. But that willingness disappeared if after the stressful event or tales, they have a sense of control restored. It's like kind of in the moment. And then once we feel like we're back in control, like we're just back to spending again. That's interesting. And actually, I I find that to be true, you know, that at least from the studies that I've seen is that after sort of a recession, there's sort of this great bounce back. It's really fascinating to think about how consumers are thinking about control, because another experiment found that stress increases the importance of acquiring necessities unless they perceive they have a high amount of control over their lives and environment. And then the necessities feels much more manageable and tenable. I'm constantly going back to the stockpiling toilet paper. This is a great example. They're just doing this as an expression of control, right? They can't control all these other elements of their lives, maybe, or the uncertainty, maybe. But they can control the fact that they have enough toilet paper or water or or whatever, you know. Whatever I mean, it like is, yeah. All the pasta is gone, you know. I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't know what they think is happening. Uh, they also found in a subsequent, uh, subsequent experiment uh, that consumers can feel stressed in situations in which they also have a high amount of control over the outcome. So in these situations, they're less likely to increase their money-saving activities. So you can still be stressed even though you have control over the outcome. And I think that even in that particular case, I would imagine that they also would spend more money on what they considered essentials. Like we heard about on Amazon, like suddenly, you know, they were selling uh, Clorox wipes for $50. Of course, that's related to a lot of different reasons. And there are people that have been taking advantage of that. But certainly that kind of leads to that, that people would even be willing to to click the the button to buy that just shows how much stress plays into it. There's a variety of other experiments here, Reed, and it all is around like how stress and lack of control is related to money saving or money spending. Two experiments in general, they demonstrated that stress can sometimes lead to increased spending when stress results from an event in which typical non-necessities become necessities. You think about going to the grocery store now, and you think about the grocery store workers, which before you never would pay attention to them. They were just in your way. Now it's like suddenly I was thanking everybody for working there and being able to do their job. And the the cashier even said, well, this is just my job. I'm just doing my job. When this first started coming about, right, where the whole shortage of fill in the blank at the grocery store thing started happening, and you would go and like, I remember going to the grocery store, it's probably been a couple of weeks ago now or a week ago, and there was no meat in, in the deli side, and I'm not talking about the uh, like sandwich meat and stuff, but like there was no ground beef, there were no steaks, there was no chicken, there was no, you know, all, all that area. And it made me think like, man, I mean, you take a lot of this stuff for granted, right? Like did you just show up here and they have it. And so I think that's where we're talking about like this non-necessity becoming a necessity. Like I didn't even realize I needed it until, <laughs> until I couldn't get it. 
contrary to what people are thinking now listening in, this is not an episode about grocery stores. This is about people and consumer behavior and how consumers react, because it really is important to know that when we as hospitals and health systems, our role in, in this crisis is one of necessity, very much necessity. And yeah. so how people react to us and the way we communicate and the things that we do are very important, right? Yeah, and I'll just mention this uh, small part of this article. Again, you can go back and read it. But, you know, they talk a little bit about the 2008 recession, and we're not going to get into to a lot of that. But what's interesting is, is they talk about that historically people bought things to feel good, you know, material goods, right? Like you would, you know, that was a lot of the driving force, and especially as marketers, you can appreciate that. You know, you need the new car. That's why we put the bow on the Lexus at Christmas, you know, or whatever. Coming out of that recession, people started to look at experiences and opportunities as being more satisfying. I think that's kind of an interesting thought of like, okay, well, what does that mean for healthcare? You know, as we come out of this, you know, when people are really going to be thinking about experiences versus buying material things. They pulled together an interesting thing that we should cover here is various different types of segments of what they call the new segmentation of consumers, particularly in a crisis. So the first one they refer to, Reed, is the slam on the brake segment. This is the group that felt most vulnerable when they were hardest hit financially. They reduced spending. By eliminating, postponing, decreasing, or substituting purchases, and when we say purchases here, we might be able even to say elective health procedures. This group included lower-income consumers as well as anxious higher-income consumers. That's an interesting segment to think about. It is, and you know, probably one that's not crazy. Right. I mean, it's like something dramatic has happened. I'm stopping everything. The next segment they point out is kind of that next group up. I guess, or down, depending on how you think about this. They're patient, but they're still pretty much on that conservative side of the equation and have a chance to become a slam on the brake person. But they're resilient. They're optimistic. They're fairly confident about the prospects of recovery, they say. But, you know, depending on what happens this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, they very quickly could find themselves in that slam on the brake side. And this was kind of that largest segment as they kind of went through and looked at everybody. You know, it included the majority of like, for example, majority of households uh, because they were unaffected by unemployment. Well, you feel good for now, you know, kind of things. But as news gets worse, you, you have that chance of falling into that other bracket. Another segment that's completely different. And I and when we when we talk about this one, I can already immediately place a certain part of our society in this in this segment. It's the comfortably well off segment. They're secure about their ability to ride out the bumps in the economy. They never really changed their spending habits from pre-recession to post-recession. They were a little bit more selective with their purchases. And no surprise, they're in the top 5% income bracket, right? So these are the people that are well-to-do and in this day and age probably have access to coronavirus testing ahead of everybody else. These are the people that kind of feel more in control. And, and so these are the comfortably well-off segment. Probably a, a small segment, but an important segment in your community right now. It absolutely is. Now, the last segment is the most fun to talk about. 
I don't know if fun's the right word, but it's the like screw it segment, which is you know, just like, you know, they actually call it the live for today. So they carry on as usual, mostly remain unconcerned about their savings. The recession, you know, in this case, extended their timetables, uh, maybe for making major purchases, but they're younger, they're ambitious. It's kind of like, you talk to a lot of folks and you can tell they feel invincible just in life. They're not going to die anytime soon. They're not going to get sick. They're not going to, you know, it's kind of that same scenario. They go to spring break in Florida in the middle of a pandemic, for example, right? These are those people <laughs> that just yeah. like feel like yeah. nothing is going to change. Well, obviously in, in today's health marketplace, the one that we're now all interacting with and creating communications with and, and, and using our tools to really try to effectively reach them and, and help them shift their public behavior to help with this public health crisis, it's important to recognize these segments. And why don't we do this after the break? Why don't we come back and talk a little bit about how that's happening today, what we're seeing uh, with our hospitals and health systems across the country? With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. So before the break, Reed, we were talking about the different types of segments of people reacting in a panic mode and in a crisis mode. If we know what they're doing and how they're searching in the different types of segments, that really leads to us and, and what we need to do as hospitals and health systems and what our responsibility is. And it's also in a landscape where the tools and technologies are changing very, very quickly. Let's talk a little bit about that, Reed. From your perspective, where do you feel our responsibility should lie? Well, you got to assume by the nature of what's happening and having to be home, stay home, everything's online, digital, et cetera, et cetera. Our responsibility is quite heightened during this time, you know, and we should have been doing this all along, which is, you know, making sure that the information people are finding is, is correct. You know, we want to be seen as an authority. Well, we've got that opportunity. And quite honestly, it's probably on us whether or not we want to or not. And so we're seeing some of that. I mean, we've seen some of the announcements from like Google and Yelp around some of the changes they're making. So, for example, just a quick recap, Google has turned off or paused reviews. The problem with that is you can still go write a review for a hospital and you, the author, see the review. And assume the business also saw the review. Well, they don't. They're not notified. It's not in the back end. It's not in the Google My Business dashboard, um, at least not last time I checked. And so you have no way to respond to it or any historical reviews. So what does that mean? You know, well, we need to be thinking about people that may be coming to these listings. So we need to update them. And, you know, I talked with Aaron Clifford from Binary Fountain a little bit about this last week. We've got the ability to make Google posts, right? You can make a post on those listings. And Google has added a COVID-19 category as a post type. So you can start making updates, right? And giving information, is this a testing location or not? Because they've also turned off the Q&A functionality there. So we need to think about, well, where are people finding us online? And is that information correct? I think that's absolutely true. And and particularly in the landscape where 
things are changing so quickly. They are clamoring for this information. So they're reaching out to every different digital touchpoint that you have. And that's like not only your Google listings and your Yelp listings, but they're going to your website to get information. They're, they're reaching out maybe through social media. They're trying in any way possible to try to stay on top of things. And like you said, right, this is a heightened sense or a heightened environment for us as digital folks to really be there to respond. But what's interesting too, though, Reed, is that things are changing and moving as just as fast internally within our organizations as well. We're all not only having to be responsible for communicating the, the latest changes, changes are happening so quickly that we're struggling to kind of keep up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on the agency side and I'm having a hard time keeping up. You know, there's just so many calls, so many things happening, so many changes. Being inside of a healthcare system, it's 100 miles an hour for sure. Often we get our news from internal communications that then we have to figure out how to translate and communicate in the right way. Again, thinking about these different segments, the people that are going to be totally freaked out and on the edge, there's going to be people that are in nervous anxiety, and then there's others that are not. We have to figure out how to communicate and message information to these different audiences. And then also like our outreach to media outlets and other established third-party outlets that are also clamoring for information because they realize that there are serious changes going on, yet sometimes they're getting different messages as well, which we can lead to like some of the things that we're seeing hospitals kind of dealing with right now, staff being furloughed, for example. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I've heard from a couple of folks where the marketing staff is being furloughed. Maybe the communications folks are still around if there is such a thing of kind of individual sides. These folks are in charge of a lot of communication channels where people are reaching out to us and we need to make sure that we have keys, right? That we can get into these platforms that we're able to answer questions because Facebook is still, there's a million questions coming through hundred miles an hour. And if we let these folks go through furlough or otherwise uh, that typically man these platforms, we have to have a backup for that. Another one I think that's that's kind of interesting along those lines, right, is historically it was pretty easy to understand uh, or it became repeatable, I guess, or predictable that, you know, people reaching out to us through these platforms, you knew what it was going to be about. Like there were wait time issues, maybe there's a billing issue. There's probably some questions here and there and stuff like that, but, but, but it became routine. It, it was not intense from a volume standpoint necessarily. And once you did it for a while, you kind of got it down. Well, now, number one, it's more intense, but, but secondly, every interaction is unique. And you're having to constantly verify information. Is this still our visitor's policy? You know, okay, so we say they can have a visitor for L&D, does that also include if they're having a C-section, can they go into the OR? You know, it's just all these nuanced questions that are taking a lot of time. And obviously you're having to get questions answered a lot of times through admin or clinical folks that are busy. Just being on top of that and staying on top of that, I think is really important. And again, it speaks to the fact that, you know, that in the internal part of your organization becomes a very critical part of how you externally communicate to people. And if you have people that are coming from all different areas, they could be just frantic and feeling really, really nervous 
about the very simplest things, right? Not to mention now, Reed, we roll out all these new different ways they can engage with us, telemedicine solutions that are rolled out very quickly. We're now doing uh, community updates via Zoom and things like that. And now suddenly it's like, we have to figure out very carefully all of these different digital touch points, what's the best way to reach out to people and how to communicate to them in a way that will resonate with them and not cause them to get even more anxious and spur more questions, so to speak. Man, it is just such a, um, it's such an interesting time. And I think, you know, the interview is going to go into, so it's actually an interview that I did a little while back, but I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense right now. And again, this doesn't have anything to do with the crisis or anything that's going on right now. But I uh, had an opportunity to visit with Kelly McDonald at, at uh, the, the Wexner Medical Center over at OSU. And it's really interesting because they did an internal social media audit and went through and tried to figure out what exists, right? We've got people setting up Facebook pages and groups and all that. And how do you get control of all that? And how do you make that consistent and standardized so when people are finding you online, the information is correct, but also when they then connect with you, someone connects back. There's some level of engagement She's got some very practical tips that could be useful for us in this time. And so let's uh, hear from Kelly right after this break about finding and taking control of all those properties. All right, we're back with the Ask the Expert portion of the podcast, the part of the podcast where people that actually know what they're doing and do it on a daily basis uh, join Chris and I on the show. And today I am uh, fortunate to have Kelly McDonald join us, and she is currently the Senior Manager of Social Media at The Ohio State University, Wexner Medical Center. For those that are sports fans, know why I emphasize the the part. Thanks, Kelly, for uh, for coming on for a few minutes. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're at a, a really cool organization, a big organization, and, and we'll kind of get to that here in a minute. But for those that are not familiar, Ohio State, uh, the, the Wexner uh, Medical Center, there's also the James Cancer Center and some other components to the organization, but we're going to talk specifically about kind of your domain today. And not too long ago, I saw a piece where I guess you were kind of interviewed Q&A style for um, socialmedia.org health about uh, a project that you guys undertook uh, not too terribly long ago. Yeah. So we kind of decided about a year and a half ago that we really needed to have a good handle on all of the different social media accounts that were existing and sort of representing the Wexner Medical Center brand. And so, you know, there hadn't really been anything in place, no processes, you know, a lot of people were just kind of logging on to Twitter and throwing up a logo and, you know, (laughs) tweeting about what their divisions were doing. And, you know, while on one hand, I'm always excited when people are excited about social media um, and all of the different things that they can be using it for, we knew there were some concerns, you know, not just on the branding side, but particularly in healthcare HIPAA concerns and just making sure that, you know, all of the folks who are running those accounts kind of know what they're doing and that we're aware of all the people that are out there speaking on behalf of the medical center. You touched on something that's kind of interesting. And as as the guy that 
deals with a lot of hospitals around the country and I kind of parachute in and then leave and that kind of stuff. I'm starting to hear more and more about maybe, maybe people don't say HIPAA necessarily, but you know, physicians participating online and in those types of things. And we've helped some people with some, some policy development type stuff, because I think, and maybe you can confirm this, a lot of people create a social media policy for their organization in, in 2010, shortly after launching a Facebook page or, or something like that. And probably have not revisited the policy since. And so there's not much in the policy around like the branding piece. Like you mentioned the logo or like, can they use OSU in like their handle, right? Or their their name for their Twitter account that they're starting in, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you kind of balance that idea of you want people to be excited and want them to do things online, right? With... Uh, okay, but hang on a second. You know, you don't want to be like always the person, the compliance police or, or whatever <laughs> it is, right? So, I mean, how, how do you kind of balance that idea? It's funny you say that because we were pretty much exactly in that position. You know, we we had sort of a vague social media policy in place that had not been looked at since about 2009. And at the time, it was very much just like, don't use social media while you're at work or caring for patients, which, (laughs) you know, now we're encouraging physicians and other clinicians to get active on social. And, and you could, you know, probably ask a lot of people who met me when I first started at the Wexner Medical Center that would say I was definitely that person that felt like I was always coming in and blowing the door down and saying, no. And at first, a lot of people really didn't understand. And I think, you know, there's this idea that, oh, it's social media. It's just a free way to market. And that's where people are. And we need to have a Twitter because I saw someone else had a Twitter. What we sort of moved into saying was, okay, we want you to be able to use social, but why and what are your goals? And a lot of people weren't even really thinking about that. And they didn't know about the algorithms. They didn't know that, you know, people that they were looking to reach maybe weren't even seeing their content. They didn't know how to measure that things were successful. And so while at first it did feel like, you know, maybe I was policing a little bit, I think once we were kind of able to explain to people, you know, this is why we have these certain guidelines and requirements and you know, really share with them that it's because we want them to spend their time wisely, particularly because many of the folks running our sort of brand affiliated pages are actually practicing clinicians. And so between research and seeing patients and all the other things they're doing, I don't want them to be sending out a Facebook post that no one's going to see because that's just a waste of their time. So I think when we positioned it that way as kind of working in a partnership to help them be successful, it sort of helped bridge that gap a little bit. As an academic medical center, I guess, obviously there are a lot of department level kind of ownership, I guess, uh, of different accounts and maybe not brands, but or maybe brands. Is that kind of where some of the need to go, okay, well, we, we've got to kind of get our arms around what currently is out there and what people are doing. You, you can't own it all, right? I mean, a community hospital probably has like a Twitter account, a Facebook account, you know, maybe a couple of locations on Facebook or something like that. But again, an academic medical center is a little bit different uh, structurally, I guess. So is that the idea of like, okay, 
people have gone and done for a period of time. We, we've got to kind of get an idea of what the landscape looks like. You know, sometimes it came out of just sort of simply identifying, um, you know, even differences between residencies and divisions and what their different goals and audiences are and what messages they're sharing and who they kind of need to ladder up to all the way to, um, you know, we'd have had pro- times where patients were finding departmental pages and posting complaints there. And we're not aware of what's going on because we don't know those pages exist. And the people who are sort of adminning those pages don't have access to the like specific legally approved responses that we have to give. And so kind of a big circular situation here where, you know, they don't know about us and we don't know that they have the page. And that can lead to a lot of confusion, both internally and the messaging that we're giving, and then also where patients are going to, you know, find the information that they're looking for. So how do you start this process? Somebody one day, maybe you decides, hey, we should do this thing. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> like what what kind of what's that first step look like? I mean, there's the known things, right? There's the stuff that you guys, your department, marketing communications, whoever owns and knows about. Where do you go from there? Yeah. So I was actually really lucky in that when I started at the Med Center um, just over two years ago, they had kind of already sort of started kicking off talking through how this process was going to work. And so a lot of it was very, very manual in the beginning in terms of just getting on Twitter and searching for Ohio State, searching for Ohio State Med Center, Ohio State Hospital, Wexner Medical Center, all the types of kind of names that people could potentially be utilizing and just sort of digging through profiles that way. The same with Facebook. We were also kind of then uncovering, which we didn't count on, um, a lot of sort of unofficial pages where people were just checking in and they weren't, you know, kind of getting that official page to check in. And so they're creating a page and then there's people leaving reviews there and no one owns that page. And so that kind of opened a whole nother can of worms for us. Then from that point, it was really, okay, as we're identifying these, they're kind of going into these big spreadsheets. We're working with either, you know, the marketing managers of that service line to see if we can identify who started the account. If not, maybe reaching out to some of our physician partners that are in these departments to maybe guide us in the right direction. Um, But a lot of it was very sort of manual trial and error at the beginning. I I have done enough Google Sheets and Excel documents and things like that (laughs) through the years. It sounds fun in kind of a weird way to kind of track some of this stuff down. But it is. It's one one thing to say we found the profiles or, you know, accounts or whatever. But I, I can't even imagine how hard that would be to then find who owns it, who like who has access to it. It's just such a kind of wild west, weird place to be. And then you mentioned it, the, the Facebook places that just get auto-generated via, you know, other directories or check-ins or, you know, wherever the data comes from and trying to clean that up. Uh, was there a technology play in all of this? I mean, once you kind of assessed and, and found at least what you felt were the majority of the accounts and profiles and things like that, was there, was there a technology piece to any of this? So not so much kind of right away on our end. Later down the line, um, about maybe eight months ago to a year ago, the university as a whole rolled out a policy and they began to audit all of the accounts across the entire institution, which you know was more than like 1,600 by the time they were done. So it was 
a very daunting task. Um, and they did have or end up signing up with some software that flags, you know, anything that's using like a reference of Ohio State or a copyrighted or trademarked image. And, you know, now we're kind of able to identify those things a little bit more proactively and also be able to remove those things a little bit easier through that tool if we find, which happens often, you know, oh, this was created by a resident five years ago and they haven't you know, tweeted since and no one knows how to log in. So that has made it easier now. But for the most part, what we were kind of doing on the med center side was just very manual um, and working kind of directly with some of the reps on the platforms to address some of those issues. Were there other kind of like ahas or insights kind of as you went through this process that you were either glad to see or weren't expecting maybe or were unfortunately did find? You know, like I kind of mentioned earlier, we did have some issues where there were some complaints that were being out there. And I think that was kind of, to me, one of the biggest surprises because we do have a pretty strong overall brand presence on all of the social channels. And it seems that, you know, typically when people want to complain, they find us pretty easily um, on our main on our main pages. And so the fact that people were kind of looking for these more niche departmental pages to maybe complain about something more specific was a little bit surprising to me because it just probably took more work on their end to be able to get to that point. And they weren't really coming to us directly on the main channels. And I think just sort of the overall sheer number of particularly small groups within larger departments and divisions. And that was kind of one of the things that sort of drove us to having part of our requirements be that for the most part, with a very few exceptions, unless you are an overall department, we really don't approve an affiliated social account because a lot of these small labs or tiny areas within an overall division in a department are so low on resources that they're tweeting so infrequently that it doesn't even make sense to have a Twitter. Probably most people aren't even seeing what they're sharing. They're getting such low engagement. And so a lot of those accounts kind of had gotten started. And then I think people were realizing it wasn't getting you know, any success and they were sort of just leaving them by the wayside, which there were a lot more of those out there than I really had expected overall. You mentioned the, uh, you know, finding different comments and maybe reviews and, and things like that that were kind of hanging around out there on somebody's department or even lower level pages. Are we seeing a shift around the idea that these are customer service channels first for consumers? Yes, I think so. Definitely. Um, you know, we work very, very closely with our patient experience team to kind of help identify any of those questions or concerns that patients might have, um, as well as billing. And they're very used to hearing from us and kind of prioritizing. And, you know, not to say that if you call in, you're not going to get, you know, the same attention to your issue. But, you know, I think maybe five, six, seven years ago, especially in the healthcare space, that was not necessarily something that was true, was that people were coming on social media and complaining and expecting to get a good response um, or have someone reach out to them directly, you know, after we've kind of reached out and said, you know, hey, let's move this conversation offline. So we run the gamut these days of um, even just people coming and asking questions about clinical trials or research and, you know, how can I learn more about this all the way to sharing any issues that they might have had. And we do our best to answer them quickly and have all of our brand pages are required to, you know, be monitoring even on nights and weekends. That kind of comes with the territory if you are going to have an approved page through us so that we can make sure we're providing that customer service to our patients. I want to start a podcast that's, can you believe they asked that or something? 
there are still certain things that have been asked like via Facebook, private message or whatever that I'm like, would you really like you would ask that yeah. to <laughs> like, you don't even know who's on the other end to think that number one, somebody in a clinical role would be sitting there. Right. But even if you <laughs> did convince yourself that that was the case, like, you don't even, anyway, that's a whole nother tangent I could go off on. The amount of disturbing photos I've opened in Facebook inbox. <laughs> it's like, hey, I work in marketing. Like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this. The project itself, trying to herd all of these account, uh, accounts, pages, et cetera. Is that continuing to be an effort ongoing? Is that something that, that y'all have decided we need to do this at a certain interval? Or how, how do you keep up with it over time? We really are, are trying to maintain this as regularly as possible so that there never gets to be a point where we have that huge lift again. I think it was something close to like 190 accounts that we went through over the last you know year and a half. And... Looking right now at my spreadsheet, I can see we've got like six that are kind of sitting in my queue. And some of those are people who have submitted the application to go through the process. So, you know, it's not that we've just kind of discovered them and are now trying to figure out what to do with them. So it's much easier, in my opinion, to kind of go through that heavy lift at the beginning and then just make sure that you're maintaining it. And I think our support from the university side and the fact that they've also kind of rolled out a policy and they now have an annual audit that you have to self-submit to if you own a channel. Um, and that will happen every July. And so that kind of keeps folks accountable. And then on my end specifically, I'm what's known as the unit social media lead. So, um, you know, obviously with over 1600 accounts throughout the university, there's no way that a couple of people in university marketing are going to be able to maintain all of those. But what we do know is that each unit lead is kind of familiar with what is going on specifically in that unit. And so what we're sort of taking on the task of keeping those accounts in compliance and making sure that everything that rolls up under each unit lead is kind of maintained over time. And then when those audits come along in July, there's no red flags or nothing crazy happening that we really have to deal with there. I know a lot of people that are listening are probably thinking like, oh, wow, yeah, I probably should start nosing around the internet a little bit and see kind of what's out there. And, or I've been meaning to do this for a while or, I, you know, or it's been a while since I've done it, et cetera. Do you have any, any tips or thoughts on, you know, kind of how you start down this path? Yeah. You know, I would just say, try not to get too frustrated. It's definitely a tedious process at the beginning, but it's so worth it in the end. And um, I think just even having developed the relationships that I've been able to develop with all of our admins of our brand channels is has sort of given me a lot of relief because I trust them to run the pages appropriately. And so, you know, they reach out to me proactively if they need things, they've been through the proper training. So not only does it, you know, kind of give them the ability to feel confident running the page on their own, but it's also really helpful for my team that we're not constantly having to monitor them or be concerned, you know, that something is going to go wrong or someone's going to be posting something that they shouldn't be. So I know that it can be a large lift and that's oftentimes why people put it off is, you know, it's not necessarily the easiest process to go through, but once you kind of develop a cadence and I think also, you know, just kind of getting the awareness out there that your you exist if you have a team of social folks that you know they exist and that you're there to kind of be that partner and then people will start coming to you proactively before accounts even start and that kind of makes your job easier in the future 
Absolutely. And I, th- and I would guess this is one of those, much like the saying goes, the enemy of this project is probably perfection, I, I would assume. Yes. <laughs> and just that encouragement of, of getting started somewhere and starting to document this is, is great. She's Kelly McDonald. She works at the Wexner Medical Center at The Ohio State University. Kelly, thanks for coming on and sharing some knowledge. And we look forward to having you back. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, special thanks to Kelly. Even though that interview occurred, you know, before all this crisis happened, it's always good to be reminded that there are multitudes of ways that people can be interacting or seeking interactions with your organization. And her approach towards, you know, unifying that, collecting that all together, really gave her probably an edge up when we got into the crisis mode where we started having to communicate with people. And it's important to for those people that haven't maybe haven't done that yet to take some time where they can find it to go and start to, uh, you know, take a little bit more ownership of, of the different ways that people can interact with you online. Absolutely. Let's turn our attention to kind of what's coming down the pipe. I, I think there's a couple of things. We've got the virtual conference. That's the uh, ShishMed Mayo Clinic virtual conference. First part of June. Is that June 2nd and 3rd? Is that right? That's right. June 2nd and 3rd. Yep. And it's called the Advanced Healthcare Social Media and Digital Marketing Virtual Conference. We'll put a link in our show notes to that so you can check that out. And by the way, the link is also in our weekly TPS report. And I'm sure we'll continue to see more updates for conferences and things like that, whether they uh, currently are postponed, suspended, moved online, in person, between now and the fall. Keep an eye out for those types of things. Certainly in the aforementioned TPS report, we'll be mentioning and listing those. Look for that. Uh, Again, touchpoint.health is the website. Appreciate all the support. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to listen. Let's do a couple of recommendations. Reed, I got a good one. You probably already know about this one, but for those of you that are at home looking for good content, well, guess what? Last Friday, Ozark Season 3 came out. Hmm. We're one episode away from the end, and my wife and I are just loving it. I mean, it's as strong as the first season. I know you and I have talked about it on the show a number yeah. of times. Season three is just take it takes it once again to a whole new level. Probably some of the best drama series that I've seen on TV for a while. If you got Netflix, go out there and watch Ozark season three. If you haven't seen season one and two, go out and do season one and two, and then just keep on going through the three because it's awesome. Very good recommendation. I'm going to recommend an app I'm sure a lot of people are using right now, but it's HelloFresh. There's lots of ways to get food, I guess, delivered, but uh, it's pretty cool. You know, you get to to sign up and pick some meals, frequency, and how many people in the family and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's got some great stuff. And so you can pick based on what you're interested in or if you've got kids, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So again, kind of app-based and will help. Uh, maybe in this time with uh, a little food delivery. So there you go. Good one. Well, very cool. Again, thank you very much for the support. We'd love to hear from you over on LinkedIn, Twitter, or the like. If there's uh, something we should be talking about, resources we should be considering, articles should we should, should put in the, the weekly TPS report, let us hear from you. We'd love to, to know kind of what, what all you're thinking about, struggling with, dealing with opportunities, what's working well, not so well, et cetera. And by all means, uh, send those our way. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.
This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.